Johnson back to Fortino. Fortino rolling puck down low. Shot scores. It's Pula again. Canada wins gold in overtime. Welcome to Changing on the Fly, a podcast about hockey, politics, and social change. I'm your host, Aaron Lakoff. Like blades on the ice, Changing on the Fly cuts right to the heart of today's most important issues in hockey. We go beyond the stats and pundits to bring you hard-hitting analysis on the politics of the game we love. From taking on racism and sexism in the locker room, to looking at the impacts of climate change on hockey, we amplify voices from the margins and bring them to center ice. Stay with us. Hey, welcome to another episode of Changing on the Fly. This is episode eight, and I am your host, Aaron Lakoff. We've been away for just over a month. My apologies for that. February was a bit busier than I expected, but we are back here right now, lacing up the skates for another great episode. Today, we're going to be talking all about Alberta. Now, when a lot of people in Canada hear about Alberta, we don't really tend to think about progressive politics. And of course, this is a podcast about progressive and radical politics. Alberta kind of conjures up a lot of images of pro-oil business people and the cradle of the conservative party in this country. However, when it comes to sports and sports infrastructure, Calgary, which is Alberta's largest city, has been way ahead of the curve as one of the most progressive cities in North America. And I'll tell you why. Last November, the residents of Calgary voted in a referendum to turn down a bid to host the 2026 Winter Olympic Games. Here's a little bit of what that sounded like. And so they were celebrating uh, where the no supporters gathered. 56% of Calgarians voting against hosting, 43% in favor. People in Calgary are making it clear to their political leaders they are saying no to the Olympics, effectively putting out the torch on the city's bid for the 2026 Winter Games and leaving the spirit of the 1988 Games as a feel-good memory. It's a no with national... Some of the motivating factors of this no vote were the skyrocketing security costs and major infrastructure costs to taxpayers that have now been associated with the Games all over the world. And this is a sad process that just keeps on repeating itself from Vancouver to Rio de Janeiro to Johannesburg. Public money keeps getting dumped into private sporting events. And at the end of the day, it's huge corporations, not the citizens or workers who stand to benefit. In fact, the people are often slapped with a huge debt afterwards, while big organizations like FIFA or the IOC, that's the International Olympic Committee, run off with profits. This has to stop. Public money for private stadiums needs to go the way of the dinosaurs. If you take my city, for example, Montreal, we lost our Major League Baseball team in the Expos in 2005, and fans have been devastated ever since. Now, we're seeing a push these days to bring the team back, but it would involve building a huge new ballpark right in the middle of the city with, guess what, taxpayer money. Or take the 2026 FIFA Men's World Cup, set to be hosted by Canada, the US, and Mexico. 
FIFA, as they always do, will demand that many new stadiums be built with public money again. Another case in Montreal where three World Cup games will be hosted. Our government is planning on investing over $300 million into repairing just the roof of the Olympic Stadium where three matches will be paid. Now, even the 1976 Summer Olympics in Montreal was a huge debacle as our city was plunged into decades worth of debt for that. Now that $300 million that's just going to be spent on repairing the roof could be way better spent on public infrastructure like building public housing, improving healthcare, or even repairing our crumbling pothole infested streets in the city. Instead, it's being spent on three football matches. So let's bring this back to hockey because of course after all this is a hockey podcast. Not only did Calgary refuse to host the 2026 Olympics, but the city is also refusing pressure from the NHL to build a new arena for the Calgary Flames, who still play in the city's iconic and very 80s-styled Saddle Dome. But just three hours up the road from Calgary, in Edmonton, it's a very different story with the Oilers. At the start of the 2016 NHL season, the Oilers moved out of their old arena and into new digs, the massive, shiny Rogers Place right in the downtown core of the city. Not only did Rogers Place get massive amounts of public money to erect a monument for phone companies and Connor McDavid's lightning quick hands, but the new arena also displaced a significant urban indigenous community on what is Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton. So today on the podcast, we're going to go to this icy prairie town once the home of the great one Wayne Gretzky and a 1980s dynasty that brought five Stanley Cups home. We're going to start by getting an audio tour of Rogers Place from Ryland Kafara. Ryland is a local activist and an amazing radio DJ on the local Edmonton community station CJSF, but he's also doing a PhD at the University of Alberta looking at the impacts of Rogers Place on the downtown homeless population in Edmonton. We'll then hear from Jay Scherer, a prof in the Department of Kinesiology at U of A, who's researching the same topic and breaks down the whole story of Rogers Place for us. And just a note before we get into this, this is about way more than just Edmonton. This is about how hockey and professional sports contribute to gentrification and displacement, and what we can do to stop this highway robbery of public funds for private stadiums and arenas. And with a new NHL team coming to Seattle in 2021, other cities need to be taking note. So stay with us. We're going to be right back. All right. Hey, folks, just a few little housekeeping notes before we get deeper into this episode of the podcast. First, if you enjoy Changing on the Fly, please support us many different ways you can do that the very first one is just to subscribe easy as that you know as they say smash that subscribe button it's the easiest way to never miss an episode of the podcast tell a friend about it if your friends are like hey i want to know about these podcasts that are about sports hockey radical politics you know changing the world for the better you'd be like you know what i have just the thing for you changing on the fly and so those are the first couple of things. Also, leaving us a rating or a review wherever you get this podcast also really helps other people find it. But also, 
It's always going to be free to listen to this show. It is not free to make. And therefore, if you can spare even as little as $1 a month to help us out, we have a Patreon page. I want you to hit that pause button right now and head on over to patreon.com slash changing on the fly. Again, as little as $1 a month goes a huge way in terms of supporting this very unique and very important work that we're doing. Speaking of important work out there, I just want to uh, give a shout out to another friend and, uh, you know, sister in arms, I guess, out in the field, Courtney Zito, who is at the Department of Kinesiology in uh, Kingston, Ontario, Queen's University. She is putting on an amazing roundtable on racism and hockey that's going to be happening on Saturday, March the 30th. I am very humbled to be taking part in this event with many other amazing speakers. So the tagline of it is come learn how to foster anti-racist practices for your hockey team program or league. They're trying to reach out to athletes, coaches, fans, parents. It's really open to anyone and uh, yeah, very, very exciting. So some of the speakers are gonna be Tony McKegney, he's a former NHL player, Bob Dawson, who's a former hockey player, sports writer, and black hockey historian. I'm going to be speaking. Erica Ayala, who's a broadcaster for the National Women's Hockey League, also another great podcaster, is going to be out. Jared Lindo, who's a former OHL player. Oh, incredible. So, yeah, again, it's happening all day, Saturday, March of 30th, 8.30 a.m. to 4 p.m., Tickets are sliding scale, 10 to $25. We will put a link into the show notes. Uh, if you're in the Kingston area, if you want to head to town for this event, make sure you check it out. All right, now on with the show. These next recordings you're going to hear, the first one is with Rylan Kafara, and then with Rylan and Jay Scherer. These were recorded while I was out in Edmonton last April of 2018. Hope you enjoy Yeah. Great. So we're here in the urban core of Edmonton and uh, just a few minutes ago at Boyle Street Community Services, one of the daytime harm reduction centers in the community, uh, a flag ceremony just happened where the Treaty 6 flag was raised and now, uh, you know, flies beside the Métis flag and the Canadian flag uh, on top of the building. Wow. Uh, Boyle Street Community Services uh, is in an old banana factory. And, <laughs> and it, hey buddy. <laughs> Now I got a microphone so I can really sing. <laughs> so uh, the yeah, it's in an old banana factory and the the building is basically always changing and adapting to kind of support services for the community. Uh, just a few weeks ago, the first uh, supervised injection site opened up in Boyle Street Community Services. On the first day, there was 25 clients. Uh, one uh, overdose was stopped or prevented or helped or I don't know the exact word, but yeah. you know, someone was saved on the first day, uh -huh. uh, which is important. Uh, also, beside uh, the where a lot of the urban core community resides is uh, a new shiny building yeah right uh, across the street yeah the new downtown arena built with public money debt finance to the to the price of 613 million dollars uh, where uh, in this civic corporate partnership the the city has fronted all this money and the Cates group owner of the Edmonton Oilers will be getting every cent of profit from it for the next 35 years uh, which is about how old uh, 
uh, the you know the arenas are before they decide they need to build a new one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is crazy. It's like we're always hearing this argument. It's like we always need new yeah. stadiums, and you know the reasons never seem very good. <laughs> I've also heard a little bit about this building so, right here, the McDonald Building. Yeah, absolutely. In yeah, I, I mentioned Boyle Street is in a in an old banana factory uh-huh. uh, where I think there's usually about 600 unique visitors to Boyle Street every day uh, accessing like the drop-in or different services like employment, mental health, um, things like that. And McDonald Lofts up until just a few weeks ago was where the hardest to house people in Edmonton resided because McDonald Lofts, Boyle Street Community Services, and this area that the arena has been built uh, is where most of the the urban indigenous homeless community reside. Uh, And this, yeah, arena has been built right on top of it. And so McDonald Lofts uh, was housing about the 80 hardest to house people in the city. A lot of them through developing relationships with support workers while living in the River Valley and other places, then moved in to McDonald Lofts. About a, a, a little over a year ago, the Cates Group bought McDonald Lofts and served an eviction notice where everyone had a year to get out of McDonald Lofts. And that has finally happened. The last resident moved out, and uh, everyone is now either residing elsewhere in other housing or some are sleeping rough again, sleeping in the shelters, yeah. that kind of thing. Well, do you know if there's any reason given for that eviction? Uh, well, the, the Cates Group isn't in the, the business of supportive housing. Yeah. So they bought it for other reasons uh-huh. and yeah, gave everyone a year to leave. And now that's that part of the process is over. So the former owners of the building are now getting everything out. Uh, and then it'll, yeah, change hands. The Cates Group will officially take over and do what they're planning to do with it, whatever yeah. that is. So when the, when the arena was first being proposed and the deal was going through, it was built in a parking lot. And to a lot of the, you know, the white settlers that understand land in a certain way, okay, that, you know, like if it's got a house on it, then it's being used, you know, uh, for like that that's you know the the conventional way that somebody in the suburbs might understand the way the way space is used but uh, for the urban homeless community and and like urban indigenous population space can be used differently and 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 so the argument was since it isn't displacing houses uh, because it's being built in a in a parking lot uh, then there's no need to have any like community benefits agreement or any benefits at all really to the existing community because it was built in a parking lot so there was no CBA, which is usually done uh, in deals like the, the Staples Center in Los Angeles um, in other places throughout North America, where even with there's no public money used, the, the, the business or the owners of the arena or the, you know, the, the people that will be benefiting from the development, they will go into a, like an agreement with the existing community and work out a healthy relationship that sees a development have benefits for everyone, including people who already exist there mm-hmm. and already reside. So that didn't happen here. Yeah. And the excuse was, was that, well, there's no houses, there's no homes being displaced, but obviously yeah. a house doesn't make a home. Right. And, and the assumption is like if no one actually has a house there, that land isn't being yeah. used. Yeah, so it's it's like this whole yeah of unsettled land, right? So, so yeah, so that was really tough to uh, you know say the same thing about uh, McDonald Lofts when it is actually displacing people from their housing, yeah. which has now happened. So we are seeing as development continues, uh, yeah, the process of gentrification where the largely urban poor community 
are being displaced from their housing, uh, resources, supports. Uh, there was one in, uh, indigenous residential school survivor who lived in McDonald Lofts and uh, uh, she would just, you know, go in her wheelchair over from her apartment over to Boyle Street every day. Like you see in this parking lot, the wheelchair access door was there. Oh, yeah. She would just, yeah, she would just go over and then up that ramp and then into the drop-in. Yeah. And then spend her day hanging out with her friends and and uh, her community of support. Now she's, she's out by St. Albert. So she's okay. been moved out there. So completely separated. How far is and that? And severed. Uh, it's probably a 45-minute drive from here. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this is the the pillars of the community and it's like an air vent for the for the LRT or like oh, yeah. rail transit that that goes under here to the McEwen station just there yeah and so some of the some of the frontline workers from around here uh, came up with the idea to put like murals of existing community members up on the wall here so that when all the new fans or all the new folks coming downtown would then see like you know a image of like existing community and get a sense of like that there is a vibrant diverse community already here uh -huh. uh, and that they're like you know everyone's welcome and but you know just showing that hey this is not just like yeah unsettled land but right. there's an existing community so uh all around there's different murals um but this is this guy's name is brian and there was actually another mural there uh but uh when it went up uh i don't know exactly like the the trail of like how things went but I think a police officer recognized the face of someone that was like considered like a criminal and like bad so then they talked to like it went up to like the Cates group and then they ultimately whitewashed an indigenous males like image from the pillar someone that was picked by the community to be represented wow. and then an outsider came in decided his face shouldn't be there without any discussion with the community yeah. just saying it would be bad for the community and uh and then just yeah taking it and replacing it so it was like censored essentially. yeah exactly so even when we're trying to make a statement where hey like there's a community here it's still the powers that be still get to decide who's visible and who's not mm -hmm. so yeah visibility with the the yeah sports related gentrification yeah our major um, arena it's still like yeah still there's still dictation desperate spoken words are drowning in the sound of construction sites rebuilding the city downtown the jackhammers are stoic to the cries of the inner city poet Fortified on the ancient burial ground They buried her on a Tuesday in the fine prints of the sun Well, the headlines mourn The failure of another season Quotes from the council read A revital is what we need A term to sweep the fringes To the north and further to the east As they pour as they pour concrete 
silencing the ghosts. The ghosts buried underneath. So yeah, now we're on, uh, I guess it would be the southwest corner of the arena. Uh, there's a big, there's a big screen that does lots of ads yeah. again. So, you know, more revenue that's going to the Kate's group. Even they, they negotiated like the naming rights for getting the, the, like, so none of that, like, I don't even know how much money they made off of that, but again, more money that does not go to the city. Uh, so yeah, we're on the corner. Uh, then further to our West is McEwen University. Uh, which is centralizing all of its like campuses around the city to this downtown space uh, there to the to the south south is 104th street which is really one of the main thoroughfares from fans going to and from the arena so you'll find that uh, like you know before the games the bars are a bit busier uh, with fans going through uh, they're fairly empty during the games and then they might get some some people coming in and afterwards depending on how the game went <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, they're one of the places that, at least when events are on, there are some people coming and spending money, which was, again, supposed to be this big part of the thriving revitalization that was going to occur. Right. But from our, from our ethnography um, and our field work, we're finding that businesses might see like a bit of business before, maybe a bit after, but that's really it. Yeah. during events and and aside from like the places that would be places where hockey fans would go other places have seen a decrease in in business uh to the to the north and the east uh, is chinatown uh -huh. and most of those businesses because people are taking up all the parking to come to the game then there's no places for the the customers of the restaurants to go and so they're seeing a significant decrease in business but having to pay more taxes due to this, the community revitalization levy that's you know supposed to be how the city recoups its money through more taxes to pay for building the arena. But a lot of the places are seeing a decrease in business. Okay, so what, what are we walking by right now? So we're walking by the Edmonton Tower, which is owned by the Cates Group. They got the contract to build it from the city. And uh, beside this ice district sign, because the Cates Group also got to rename this area of town call it the ice district and then use it for marketing but uh they've got this ad here on the side of the edmonton tower and it's to advertise the prime retail and high-rise office space available and with the ice district uh name on it and then it has a guy yeah a white businessman um looking very good in his spectacles and then it just says you belong here right and i think it's really telling for uh, how downtown Edmonton has been reshaped through gentrification and now who is welcome here and what this and what this part of town is now for this space is now for you know <laughs> people who look like, like him yeah people yeah. who look like, like you as in people that look like this white businessman you belong here yeah and then like the rebranding like so they're actually trying to call this neighborhood the ice it is district. now ice district wow. and it's not i yeah i always call it the ice district when i use the term but yeah it's supposed to just be ice district okay <laughs> no the not the <laughs> yeah
I'm here with Rylan Kafara and Jay Scherer, two researchers here in uh, the Faculty of Kinesiology at the University of Alberta. We're going to be talking today about Rogers Place and basically its impacts on Edmonton. Um, maybe first, if we could kind of start at the beginning of the story. So like, take us back to that period when there was an announcement made and the Oilers are going to move out of their old arena. I'm blanking. Rexall Place, Coliseum, the Coliseum, <laughs> and into a new one. Um, so, what was happening around there, and what was some of the justification for it? Well, um, I guess the first time I ever heard of an interest in building a new arena was in 2005. Uh, so, right at the end of the lockout, and the basically the Oilers. Um, made it public that they were looking for a new facility with greater amenities, greater luxury boxes, greater revenue-generating opportunities, and that uh, Rexall Place uh, at the time was, I think, the second or third oldest facility in the in the NHL, even though it was only built in the 70s, and um, started the public campaign um, to get the political process rolling. So that was the first time uh, the two the two sides being the city of Edmonton and the Edmonton Oilers started negotiating in January 2011 officially uh, and signed the final agreement in the spring of 2013. And at that point, the deal between the city and, and the Oilers was complete. And I believe construction started fairly soon after and the facility opened in 2016. Hmm. And so there must have been like some, some pressure um, coming from the private sector as well um, to, to build this new arena. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about like that push to get the team out of the, the old arena and, and to build a new one. Yeah, the, the vision for a new arena and in particular new downtown arena um, aligned with a dominant um, growth agenda at the time, which was to revitalize Edmonton's downtown core. Um, so it aligned with not only uh, a vision of a downtown for developers 
uh, for those particular interest groups who stood to, to profit from uh, increases in land valuations, but it also aligned with the city's vision for what it wanted uh, in terms of uh, a more uh, attractive, and I use that word in quotation marks, um, destination for people to go uh, to, to, to live, to shop, to work. So it was really a, you know, sort of that fusion, right, that corporate civic project of uh, adding value to land in the downtown core and to changing um, changing the you know classic image making of a downtown for Edmonton which has been caricatured for many many years uh, as you know a wasteland for to use the words of others I mean that that characterization I think is really interesting because the term you brought up before revitalization is oftentimes such a loaded term right like what kind of revitalization revitalization for whom and so maybe if either of you could talk a little bit about what the downtown looked like prior to the stadium being built, maybe what it looks like now, and what are some of the major changes you've seen in that transition? Well, I guess I'll, I'll start by saying it depends on, on who you ask, what it looks like. You know, what it looks like for a developer is very different from a community member who's lived there for years. Uh, and I think your point about revitalization being a, a loaded term is an accurate one because it really in my opinion is just a polite euphemism for for gentrification it's a marketing buzzword that that cloaks um, a lot of the types of difficult changes and impacts that those processes have on pre-existing community members pre-existing businesses pre-existing social service agencies who have serviced uh, those communities in that area for many many years um, so all those questions have, have big caveats attached to it and you know, Ram, maybe you, you can sort of take over in terms of, of what the spaces looked like before. Yeah, or? I was just, I was just reimagining <laughs> that in my head and thinking about how really the big difference is before the spaces were used by the existing residents. And that even means like the, the parking lot that the arena now sits on was a space where homeless community members would spend time. I uh, was, you know, if not like to sit like actually like spend time in the space but to go through the space walking through uh it was a space where animals would spend time too like uh there's a, a community member took a photo of some geese that were bathing in like a pond that came out of like one of the rainstorms and so just yeah the difference is that the space now being developed again in quotation marks uh it's it's mostly just been change to be utilized by people who don't actually reside in the area um, from like just those like the examples of where the arena is now close by it there was a community garden and spaces like that that were used and utilized um, by existing residents and now that's not the case now mm -hmm. they need to keep moving and stay out of the way of the new residents or the temporary residents who come in for events mm -hmm. so this new rebranding of the downtown which um rebranding is like a textbook example like from the gentrification playbook right like you take a neighborhood and and oftentimes developers will will change the name right rebrand it kind of erase the old out with the old in with the new and so they're calling this new area uh down around where rogers place is the ice district um so can you guys talk a little bit about that like what is the ice district what's it supposed to be Who's that space supposed to appeal to and be used by? 
Well, it's just Ice District, right? Yeah. There's no the. <laughs> yeah, we have to be clear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why would there be a the? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's meant to be this fusion of um, entertainment, hockey, uh, commercial office space, and condominium development. So it's it's in a vision of of you know the dominant business model of professional sport that's ascended over the past 10 to 15 years that's combined all these revenue generating opportunities for owners who are affluent enough to be able to invest in them mm -hmm. um, so that that's the vision for the area uh, it's a it's an upmarket uh, cosmopolitan uh, type of venue that has combined all these business opportunities and and at least two of them are heavily subsidized by taxpayers <laughs> I might add um, and it's designed to bring people who can afford to um, be a part of that entertainment circuit, who can afford to buy condominiums, or in other cases, who work in those office buildings, and bring them to the downtown. Um, and they may not have been people who would have gone there before, or they may have gone there for different reasons, but to this particular location in the downtown core. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the vision, that's who it's targeting. Um, and it's uh, being built, as we've already talked about, over top of a community that's been there for much longer, a uh, community that's um, traditionally been less affluent, and in, indeed in Edmonton, a, a community that's been predominantly Indigenous. Mm -hmm. Jay, you, you gave a presentation at the NAS conference uh, in Windsor um, last November, and, and, and one of the things that really stood out for me from that was, um, you know, the, the fact that a lot of this research um, that you both have been doing around Rogers Place, you're kind of looking at it through a lens of, of colonialism and you know settler colonization uh, here in Edmonton, um, here in so-called Canada and in Turtle Island, and and that's really fascinating because you mentioned you know there there was um, and continues to be a large urban indigenous community around there, and I'm wondering. You know, oftentimes when we talk about gentrification, we don't necessarily bring that that lens into it, looking at settler colonization. But what might we understand about, you know, this arena and this project by looking at it in this way? <clears throat> well, you know, I, I guess there's a strong case to be made that it's it's a continuation continuation of those historical processes, uh, transformation of of nature into uh, a land commodity for exchange, um, the ascendance of land speculation uh, in terms of the transfer of, of wealth and property into private interests, and an inevitable displacement of people who, again, predated those processes, those settlers, uh, those investors, those developers, um, to other parts of the city, if, if not beyond. So, you know, I guess I've always seen them as dynamics that are related to the history of, of colonization and, and really another part in that ongoing cycle um, that, you know, remains unaddressed. Mm -hmm. There was some speculation that, um, that the Cates group was going to take the team and move them to another city. I think Seattle got floated. Seattle, Hamilton, <laughs> uh, Quebec City. Right. And I mean, but like specifically with Seattle, there's, I think, an irony there because Seattle, of course, lost their basketball team, uh, the Supersonics, to Oklahoma because they refused or the, I think the city voted in a referendum to not build a new basketball arena. Um, 
And so, yeah, maybe talk about that that kind of like that looming threat of the team moving and maybe how that played out uh, with fans and people who really appreciate the Oilers. Well, I mean, it's I guess I'd start again by going back to history. It's a threat that people in Edmonton are very familiar with because the former owner of the team uh, in the 1990s, Peter Pocklington made the same threat repeatedly to try and get and indeed was successful in doing so concessions uh, from various levels of government to renovate Rexall Place. You know, again, I guess that's another reminder, too, of the history of public investment in that facility, which is not that old, as we've talked about already. Mm. Um, so we're familiar with the owner's playbook very well in Edmonton, and it, indeed it's a well-known playbook. Um, and, but because of that, um, the threat uh, was perceived by many to be a, a hollow one. You know, people are really uh, educated in Edmonton about the value of the Edmonton market, about the business of hockey and those types of dynamics, and they knew that Edmonton was a strong market, uh, especially after the 2004-2005 collective bargaining agreement that uh, introduced a salary cap. So, you know, it, it was a classic bluff strategy. Um, most people saw through it. Unfortunately, uh, a few on council uh, were quite uh, taken by the threat and saw it as as um, a very real possibility that the franchise could leave. And and I think you know, as you know, as most people know, the the owners, um, as part of the broader cartel within which they operate, deliberately restrict the number of franchises, and they keep cities on hold uh, to blackmail to allow current owners to use as potential destinations. Obviously, Quebec City is the, the one in Canada. You're here in Calgary, do the same. So it, it, it's done, it's used, because it works. Mm. And, and I guess at the end of the day, it worked to a degree in Edmonton because they got the facility built. Wow. I'm curious, like, what, was there any kind of like public mobilization against the new arena, like protests, campaigns, things like that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, when you look back at the debate um, in all of the polls, the public polls that were done, uh, it, you know, they were unanimous in terms of demonstrating opposition to the use of public funds to mm -hmm. build the new arena. So there was tremendous opposition across the city. There was certainly at least one uh, grassroots organization that mobilized and, and tried to um, promote different arguments than the ones that were being made by the city and by the Oilers and by their proponents in the media. Uh, they were ultimately unsuccessful for a variety of reasons. Um, and, and second, just in terms of the online discussions and the role that bloggers played in Edmonton, uh, there was a phenomenal exchange of, of arguments online by a number of individuals who did an extraordinary amount of research on the business of hockey, on the economic impacts of new arena districts or lack thereof. And so that, that was a really interesting like battleground for these types of ideas, but ultimately the city uh, held a monopoly of power in terms of the decision, i.e. there wasn't a plebiscite, there wasn't a referendum, and the majority of councillors were in favor of it, and of course that won the day. So um, I know also part of your research has looked at the Community Benefits Agreement, or the CBA, uh, that was in place um, uh, when Rogers Place was built, and I'm wondering if, if either of you could talk a little bit about what was that CBA, maybe where it was lacking, and, and where you see that now, uh, what, two years after the arena is opened? 
Well, so there there was no CBA. <laughs> yeah, spoiler. Uh, so in other you know cities that have had uh, major arena developments, like we often bring up the the LA Live uh, Community Benefits Agreement, which was a deal that did not actually include public funding, but still included a legally binding CBA between the developer and existing residents that had, uh, you know, uh, like a conversation between people and the developers to to see what they wanted, see what they thought would make, you know, this development actually a healthier part of the community. And so things in the agreement included living wage jobs, affordable housing, and trying to get something like that in Edmonton was just a non-starter. Mm. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the fact that it was on, like the actual arena was on a, like a, a parking lot uh, was kind of used as the reason, well, we're not displacing any actual houses, so then we don't need to give any concessions or give any benefits uh, related to housing. And we'll have jobs at the arena, you know, be it they'll be minimum wage part-time, that still is seen as a benefit. And so uh, trying to negotiate or advocate for, for meaningful benefits was really difficult in Edmonton. Mm -hmm. It's called a community benefits agreement in terms of a document that's contained within the master agreement between the city of Edmonton and the Cates Group, but it's, as Ryland said, it's not in any way a legally binding uh, community benefits agreement akin to the type that had been negotiated in other cities. There was pretty much zero involvement in terms of legitimate and genuine community consultation in terms of what pre-existing community members or businesses or the social service agencies wanted. Uh, a number of individuals uh, from the community, um, several chief executive officers from some of the nonprofit organizations, indeed um, at least two or three of the councillors on council at the time and a number of other community members, uh, including yours truly, uh, really tried to encourage um, an awareness of the importance of these types of agreements to council. Uh, a few people held meetings with councillors, uh, information sessions. All of that counted for naught at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And so um, that type of traditional legally binding agreement was never uh, introduced. And we're seeing as a result um, not a heck of a lot in terms of some of the outcomes you would hope for that have been contained in other agreements that should have been precedents. Mm -hmm. And what you, yeah, I guess have instead was a kind of a, a committee that was formed around benefits or like an arena advisory committee with, you, you, I guess you could call different stakeholders around the area. And it really um, was just kind of an information session, sharing session. So uh, the different community like organizations or residents or community leagues representatives would come to the meetings and then the Cates group, the city of Edmonton, the police service, uh, you know, the parking departments would just kind of give updates to people mm. and, you know, and then like take information. But really it's, it's at a superficial level where, you know, at best, like, you know, they can just use it for optics and marketing, make sure people are going to be upset about parking they can get ahead of it, mm -hmm. things like that. But really at best, it was just kind of a structure that, got information to them, and then they could kind of just inform us of what they thought we needed to know. I mean, is there anything arguably good that has come out of it in some way um, where they could say, like, look, we're, we're kind of giving back to the community in a really positive way? I mean, beyond, like, the kind of whole, like, Mick Jobs type thing that they're offering at the, at the arena. 
Uh, well, they, it's kind of with how the, the, the nonprofit structure works is they'll kind of funny mo funnel money that they make through, um, you know, like raffles or contests or whatever, like the like like even from things like, you know, everyone can play type things. They'll they'll get like, you know, it'll just be fans buying something from a puck to a teddy bear. Uh, to a 50-50 ticket, and then their own money is just kind of funneled back, but under the auspices of, look, the Oilers are giving back, like ostensibly the Cates group is now giving back in different ways. And and so I, you know, I can only imagine what that must do for, for marketing and for, for tax write-offs, that mm -hmm. sort of stuff. But I, I'm very skeptical that it's any more than would have been done at the old arena too. Mm -hmm. uh, so would fans have not given money to different causes uh, it, just because they were in the Coliseum rather than the new downtown arena. Mm -hmm. And, but mm -hmm. from even, yeah, from money to even like hats during a hat trick, uh, mm -hmm. all the hats that the fans throw on the, on the ice will then be picked up and donated to a local community organization, which will then be put on social media mm -hmm. to show the kind of generosity of spirit of the organization. But again, it's really a bunch of fans that are going to have to buy new hockey right. uh, apparel again to again, make more money. They're counting on Connor McDavid getting a lot of hat tricks, I yeah. guess, too. So, um, which he just got the Art Ross trophy again for, anyways. Uh, it's like a high score thing, right? Yes. For exactly. doing his job. For doing his job. You did your job. <laughs> um, just have a couple more questions. To me, another really fascinating aspect of the story is if you look at the kind of the classic battle of Alberta, right? The flames and the Oilers, and then the way that's playing out with hockey arenas. And so correct me if I'm wrong, but so f from my understanding, there's been a very different way with how this whole stadium thing has played out in Calgary versus here in Edmonton uh, with the mayor of, of Calgary uh, up until now being pretty adamant that you know, if there is going to be a new hockey arena, if the Flames are going to move out of the Saddle Dome, uh, which I think was built for the 88 Olympics. So again, probably not that old, but maybe I've got my facts wrong there. Um, if, if they are going to move into a new arena, the bill isn't going to be footed through public money. And actually the NHL commissioner, uh, Gary Bettman, uh, recently kind of like flaunted this over Calgary. He's like, oh, well, if you drive up the road to Edmonton, they've got this beautiful new building there and uh, the flames are doing this all wrong. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the contrast between those two cities and, and you know, what's been happening in, in Calgary um, that has made it go so differently. Well, look, a couple of things. Um, Calgary saw what Edmondson went through. They were a bit more prepared politically to deal with the arguments that were going to be put forward by the Flames, and they didn't accept them as uncritically as perhaps we did in Edmonton. So there was uh, a bit of an educational process that I think they benefited from. Um, their mayor is, is certainly uh, far more uh, critical and more questioning of the use of public funds for these types of developments. And has made it very clear <laughs> abundantly in his public statements. Um, the other big difference, though, is, and, and indeed this is where the Oilers enjoyed success and, and perhaps why the Flames hasn't, is, is that the Oilers were able to tie their aspirations for a new downtown arena with a dominant growth agenda that the city wanted and indeed was desperate to have happen. Uh, and if you look at sort of the history of these issues in cities across North America, um, 
at least for the French, the sports franchises, when you enjoy success in these types of debates, is when you have attached your vision of a new arena with that dominant growth agenda that the city can then justify using public funds for. And that hasn't been the case in Calgary. Right? They haven't had that downtown redevelopment uh, argument attached with the new facility. So those are the two big points of difference, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, and people saw what happened in Edmonton, they, and they know the bluffs. Uh, they're calling them out. Uh, I guess the last point that I'll raise is their media, in terms of, of, of journalists, have been far more critical, far more willing to hold up these ideas for, for questioning, uh, far more willing to ask tougher questions than certainly we saw in Edmonton, with mm. a couple exceptions. Um, so the, the, the debate in the public sphere has been much more rigorous. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a way, it's kind of sad because... Like we see this happening time and time again, like public funds being put into private stadiums and arenas. Um, you know, you can think about like the World Cup that just happened in Brazil a couple of years ago. Um, basically, every Olympics ever, and it's 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 an ongoing pattern. And and so, lastly, I'm wondering like how we can look at Edmonton, maybe in the Canadian context, but even more broadly than that, um, as a cautionary tale. Where like, if we want this to stop happening, this kind of like this piracy of these private developers coming and taking public money, putting it into these stadiums for for private uh, uh, benefit, you know, what what can we really learn from all these in terms of like making it a bit of a cautionary tale? Well, I think the important lesson for Edmonton is to ensure that there's some sort of pu genuine public input in terms of the decision-making process, uh, whether that's a plebiscite, and there's certainly critiques against plebiscites. They're very blunt instruments, but at least your living citizens actually decide. Um, you know, there needs to be a political will to um, stand up to threats uh, in terms of threats to relocate franchises. and. It happened to a degree in Edmonton, but certainly should have been done much more force, forcefully from the outset of the debate. Um, the, the biggest thing that will need to change, though, like, you know, we, ha we have to talk about the monopoly structure of professional sport. And, and you know, for that to change will take, you know, government intervention, at least two countries, uh, to get rid of a monopoly, right? Because the, the power that franchises have in terms of those threats is because they restrict franchise numbers right so they keep the open arenas if you actually had you know a free market in terms of uh, a competition then maybe those uh, arenas wouldn't be vacant and you take away that threat so that's the sort of broader structural element that perhaps needs to be changed mm -hmm. um, but you know I think as we see all these debates continue to play out there's more opposition and it's growing and people are becoming more aware and educated about these issues than ever before. So there's certainly more cause for optimism there. Um, and I think those are a couple of the larger lessons from Edmonton. But, you know, again, um, a lot of people in Edmonton see this as a success story. Mm. And you can't discount the power of new buildings, new shiny development buildings, particularly for a downtown that for many people lack those amenities. And, and it's really helped address the arguments that this has been a successful development for the city, that the city's got its money's worth. Mm. So, the, yeah, the big question, like, that we're looking at in Edmonton, I was like, was it worth it? Mm. 
and when you kind of uh, reflect or take into consideration other issues in in Edmonton, such as poverty, especially in the place where the arena has been built, uh, I think civic leaders should now be taking pause and hopefully starting to understand that maybe the decisions that they made related to the arena are going to hinder their plans for uh, you know things like reconciliation and and dealing with poverty and recognizing that if you're actually going to address these in meaningful ways rather than just superficial platitudes, then you have to think about that when you're making other decisions, especially related to major love, like scale developments with public money mm -hmm. that last for over three decades. Yeah, it's a 35 year agreement. hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast so far and again that was an audio tour of rogers place in edmonton with rylan kafara and then our interview with rylan and jay sharer we're almost out of here but before we go i just wanted to mention a couple last important stories you might have heard about this already because it went a bit viral in the last week, but this is the story of Jonathan Diaby, a black hockey player with the Jean-Pierre Marquis in the North American Hockey League. They were playing a game uh, against the Saint-Jérôme Petrolier in Saint-Jérôme, that's about one hour north of Montreal, on February 23rd, when racist fans began tormenting not only Diaby, but also his family who were in attendance. It got so bad that Diaby and his family had to be escorted out of the arena before the game was even over by police. Now, the question really should be, why weren't these racist fans escorted out? That is, in fact, the million-dollar question. And then not even a week later, there was another story that came out in the Quebec media about a 14-year-old Indigenous hockey player from the town of Latouk, Yan Maverick Quidditch, who came forward because he was having racist insults hurled at him from not only other players, but parents and even coaches. One thing that a lot of the hockey press has been missing when reporting on such incidents is that these really shouldn't come as a surprise in Quebec, where we have an extremely racist and Islamophobic provincial government under Raymond Legault, who want to make it illegal for people to wear religious headwear in public service. What that means is that potentially thousands of Muslim women or Jewish and Sikh men could lose their jobs. You can't just look at these stories that are happening in hockey rinks in isolation when racism in Quebec is coming down from the highest levels of office. So that's what we're going to try to do on this podcast in the hopes of putting out consistent anti-racist analysis into the hockey community. We're going to continue reporting on stories like this, and I hope you'll keep listening and keep sharing. Share this episode, share all of our past episodes with your friends, with your family, with people you play hockey with. And with that, we are out of here for real. I want to thank all of our current Patreon supporters who have helped make this show happen. Anne, Aiden, Jeff, Nick A, Jeremy, Andrew, Nick T, Eldridge, Ellen, Sam, Grill, and Dasha. Music on this episode was by a Tribe Called Quest, Fucked Up, Seastock, Lacho Drum, An Audio Rocketry, 
and the Oscar Peterson Trio. Our theme music is by Chizimba. We're also a proud member of the Upford Network of Podcasts. You can find your new favorite podcasts at upfordnetwork.com. See you very soon. We'll be back with more episodes. Hi, I'm Candace Pye, and I'm the host of Gal Chat, a weekly podcast where we give you our feminist takes on everything from sex and dating to politics and pop culture. It's a show that updates you on controversial headlines, dives into the latest movies and TV, and discusses things like Tinder troubles and Me Too struggles. I put out a new show every Tuesday with special guests, available on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Subscribe, rate, review, and follow us on social media at Gal Chat Pod. Hi, I'm Mel. And I'm Sass. And we're the host of The Last Stretch, a sports podcast. It's a podcast where we're going to talk about, well, sports. Specifically, what we do look at is what makes an athlete be the best that they can be. So not only do we talk to some athletes, but we talk to the people behind the athletes, from trainers to sports psychologists, you name it, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about other issues revolving sports as well, hot button issues like concussions, maybe doping. Give us a listen. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. I think your point about revitalization being a, a loaded term is an accurate one because it, it really, in my opinion, is just a polite euphemism for, for gentrification. It's a marketing buzzword that, that cloaks a lot of the types of difficult changes and impacts that those processes have on pre-existing community members, pre-existing businesses, pre-existing social service agencies who have serviced uh, those communities in that area for many, many years.